This podcast is distributed for informational purposes, and listeners should refer to important disclosures in the blog and the website for more information. Welcome to the WealthCast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello and welcome to the WealthCast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast, we bring you the information that you need to know in order to be a good steward of your wealth reach your goals, and improve society. On today's episode, we're going to take a bit of a detour into an unrelated subject or a subject that's not related to the typical podcast that we do, and that is the life of an historian and the Battle of Little Bighorn. One of the benefits of being a good steward of your wealth is your ability to explore your interests and things outside of business or your profession, etc., And for me, one of those interests is history, and in particular, military history. And since I was a a kid, I've read everything I could get my hands on about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And today, I'm really fortunate to be able to welcome Neil Mangum to the podcast. Neil is an historian who has been the chief historian at the Little Bighorn National Battlefield Park, as well as the superintendent of the park. Neil is one of the preeminent authorities on the American West and is highly sought after as a guide, particularly to the Indian Wars. I hope you enjoy the podcast. There's certainly enough information about uh, the Battle of the Little Bighorn in this podcast to hopefully kindle your interest in, in terms of learning more or perhaps opening a door on history in general. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining me on the WealthCast. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to chat with you and have you share your experiences career-wise and as the superintendent of the Little Bighorn National Monument and as a historian. Um, So thank you so much for joining me. Well, I'm glad to to be here today. So why don't we start at the beginning? Um, You know, you've you've told me the story of how how you made your way to employment at Little Bighorn National Battlefield Monument. And I thought it was really interesting. And there's so many parallels with, you know, business careers in terms of perseverance, et cetera. I thought it'd be an interesting thing to share with to, to start. Well, my my interest in Little Bighorn, uh, it was captivated uh, by the 1941 release of by Warner Brothers of the movie They Died with the Boots On. Uh, it was from that movie that I took a, a liking uh, personally to the uh, star of the show, George Custer, who uh, standing there alone, uh, it goes down in immortal defeat at the hands of the Sioux and Cheyenne at the Battle of Little Bighorn. From that time, when I was a kid in the 1950s, when I first saw the uh, movie, I was captivated by the event and uh, looked into, well, you know, where is, where is Custer Battlefield? And it's in Montana. Well, it's managed by the National Park Service. So who are those guys? So I did some uh, looking around. Of course, in my hometown of Petersburg, Virginia, there was a National Park Service unit, Petersburg National Battlefields. 
and uh, I did some letter writing in high school, and I wanted to uh, go out to uh, Custer Battlefield and, and be a seasonal. I uh, uh, applied but was rejected on that, but I eventually got on with the National Park Service in Petersburg as seasonal, working in the Parks Living History uh, Program, where I donned Confederate gray, and uh, we did uh, cannon-firing demonstrations, uh, cavalry for the visiting public. Well, ultimately, I wanted to go to a little bit, uh, go to Custer Battlefield, which later, by the way, was name changed to a uh, little Bitcoin Battlefield National Monument. I applied for some of the permanent jobs there at Custer because I had got on permanently at Petersburg. I was rejected the first time, but the second time I decided uh, I, when I heard that a vacancy was opening up for the chief of interpretation at the park and the historian's position. I was, at that time, I was the historian at Petersburg Battlefield. I uh, drove up personally to Montana and talked to the superintendent and said, hey, how do I I make myself known as a serious candidate for your position here? So we had a long chat, and uh, to make a a long story short, he, uh, about a year later, actually less than a year later, he uh, called me up and said he was going to uh, pick me up that there would be a transfer from my job. At the time, I was working in Missouri at another national park there, and they transferred me to Custer Battlefield. And I came up there in 1979 and became the uh, park uh, historian slash and the chief of interpretation. So that's how I that's how I got up to to Little Bighorn. So again, I, I guess part of it is uh, persevering, knowing what your you know knowing what your goals are, and trying to figure out how do I meet those goals and objectives. The same you would do in I think in a business cycle is uh, I know what I want to do. How do I get there? And not being put off by difficulties and, and having to persevere. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The rejections, uh, they come, but you say, okay, well, that's now. Uh, I'm going to see what I can do to improve my position and at the next time that, I, that the position comes open. And so, yeah, that's what, that's what you do. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I seem to remember part of the story being uh, during that process, at one point you got a rejection letter with someone else's name on it. <laughs> Is that yeah, true? The first time, yes. The first time I uh, wrote to Custer Battlefield, this would have been oh, after graduating high school, and I sent my application in, and here comes an envelope in the mail uh, from from Custer Battlefield, and I'm thinking, oh boy, here's my job. Open it up. Uh, the the letter, the envelope was right. It was addressed to me, but I had somebody else's rejection letters <laughs> in in there and of course somebody else got my rejection letter <laughs> well that that would have dissuaded most people from uh from continuing the effort but i'm sure you're glad well I'm it's sure. something that you it's something that you that you don't forget <laughs> oh, i bet i bet well eventually through your experiences there you became superintendent of the park as well correct that's correct and again that was another story where I had applied for the job that the position of the superintendent 
at, at the park had come open and I applied for it and didn't get it. And so I am uh, working at my, at my old job, which at the time was the uh, historian out of uh, Sol Ross State University. The National Park Service had an office there and I covered about six or seven national parks in the, in the Southwest region. <laughs> I, I get a call out of the blue saying, hey, how would you like to come to a Little Bitcoin Battlefield? And by that time, the name had changed officially from Custer Battlefield to Little Bitcoin Battlefield National Monument. So I got a phone call and say, well, we'd like for you to come to Little Bitcoin. And I, I said, well, let me think about it. <laughs> I took a look. <laughs> I took, I said, I need to, I, I said, and I was so excited about uh, about getting. It. I said, I, "I've got to run this by my wife and family." <laughs> and uh, of course, I called him back the next morning and said, "I'll take the job." <laughs> That's a great story. So I got rejected. I got rejected both times for the seasonal job. For the well, actually, I got rejected three times. The seasonal job, I got rejected. The uh, permanent position uh, at uh, Custer Battlefield as the historian, I was rejected there. And I was rejected the first time applying for the superintendent position. <laughs> well, there, there you go. There's, there's a perfect example of <laughs> perseverance. So thanks for sharing that, Neil. I think uh, based on your enthusiasm of the subject, that's very contagious. I think it was well-deserved in the end. So on behalf of everyone interested in uh, history and, and especially the Little Bighorn and, and all the work you've done there, thank you for persevering. I think, you know, at this point, it might make sense to to share just sort of an overview of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Um, and I might share from my perspective, my interest in the Little Bighorn started at a young age as well, probably about 10 or 12, as soon as I started really reading history. And for some reason, this particular episode in history really captured my attention. And I think it may be because of the mystery associated with the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Um, it's kind of like watching a movie where occasionally the sound goes out and then occasionally the picture goes out and then occasionally both go out and it picks up at some point, you know, further along in the movie. So you've got to interpret what happened and do some do some reading and 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 gain a better understanding. But it's it's an unsolvable you know, it's it's not one hundred percent solvable. We'll never know exactly what transpired and that's that's what uh sort of piqued my interest you know years ago and it's and it's been a lifelong interest and i'm really glad it has been it's provided me with great experiences meeting folks like you and david woodbury and and others so why don't you share sort of an overview of the battle and and then we can talk about uh a couple related topics well the battle of little bitcoin was part of a overriding campaign, the government, that means the United States government, had issued an ultimatum to all of the Indians living off of the reservation. Now, in 1876, the reservations were generally along the Missouri River, south of present-day Bismarck, and then down toward uh, Mobridge, uh, South Dakota, down that way. But there had been a number of Indians who had never signed a treaty to live on a reservation. And so the government was focusing on bringing those Indians onto a reservation. And they issued an ultimatum 
in December of 1875, which was that the uh, Indians must report to a reservation by the end of January 1876, scarcely not even two months away, that they uh, must report to a reservation or they would be considered enemies of the government. And that uh, term that was applied was hostiles. And if they did not come into a reservation, the United States government would uh, send soldiers out to force that ultimatum, uh, force that edict. The campaign loosely was supposed to be three army columns put into the field, one coming from the south out of Wyoming, another one coming out of western Montana, and another column coming out of North Dakota under the command of General Alfred Terry. Uh, including all 12, he had uh, in his command, all 12 companies of the uh, 7th U.S. Cav, commanded by Field Commander Lieutenant Colonel George Custer. And the idea was these three converging columns would locate the Indians, and then each column then would uh, block the Indians from getting away and drive them back on the other column. Now, you have to understand that when we say block, uh, we're not talking about these three columns being in such close concert that they they know what the other columns are doing. We're talking about hundreds of square miles of territory where the army did not know precisely where the Indians were located. Well, ultimately, uh, the column coming from the south under the command of Brigadier General George Crook is turned back by the uh combined forces of Sioux and Cheyenne at the Battle of the Rosebud, fought just eight days before the Battle of Little Bighorn. And he was, uh, he fell back into Wyoming and he was out of the picture. No communications as to what happened to him. Meanwhile, the other two army columns had formed a junction uh, about a hundred miles away from the uh, Little Bighorn battlefield that being the command of Colonel John Gibbon and uh, General uh, Alfred Terry. The decision was made that the, uh, based on the most current Indian uh, scouts that they had, and they had a Rickeraw and Crow Indian scouts with them, that the Indian village, and most likely was uh, based on the smoke and the evidence that they had seen, was probably over on the Little Bighorn River Valley. And, of course, that river valley runs for about 100 miles or more. So you don't know precisely where it's at. But now that they had some idea where the Indians were located, uh, Terry gives Custer free reign, uh, essentially free reign, to take his 12 companies and go go up the Indian trail that had been discovered on the Rosebud Creek, which is one valley stream east of the Little Bighorn. Custer would go up the Rosebud Valley with Custer, and then he would cross over toward the headwaters of the Rosebud over to the Little Bighorn Valley, which was the valley to the west, and then he would come down that valley. And if there were Indians, he would drive them down the valley toward the other column, which was Gibbon's column, now personally attended with General Terry. And that column would come up the Little Bighorn Valley from its mouth, and the two columns would converge on the Indians. Uh, that was the, that was the plan of action. 
Well, Custer uh, takes off on the 22nd of June with all 12 companies and about 560 soldiers with him. They go up the Rosebud Valley. They discover that the Indian Trail has turned off of the Rosebud and has gone over to the Little Bitcoin Valley. Custer uh, goes up and follows the Indian Trail uh, and gets up to a high point known today as the Crow's Nest up on the Wolf Mountain, about 15 miles from the Little Bitcoin Valley to the west. Custer uh, scouts point out a huge Indian pony herd down in the valley. They can see smoke, they claim, coming up from the valley floor 15 miles away. And Custer tells his officers what his plan is, and that is to rest them in the rest of the day. This is the morning of the 25th of June, 1876. He's going to rest his men, and using the cover of darkness, he will then go down into the Little Bighorn Valley, reconnoiter the Indian village down there, and then strike it on the morning of the 26th. That's his plan of action. But some of his scouts, and then when I say scouts, not only his Indian scouts, and he had some good Arikara scouts, and he also had a few crows whose this was their country. They knew it backwards and forwards. But he also had his white scouts to depend on who told him that you need not be worried about not being detected. The Indians have the uh, Sioux and Cheyenne have their people up too, and they've spotted you. They know we're up here. Custer had decided that, nope, uh, he argued with his officers and, and men, nope, they don't know we're here. And then one of the officers came up uh, to Custer. Actually, in fact, it was uh, Custer's younger brother, Tom Custer, uh, who came up and said, uh, hey, the uh, some of the packs had come off during the night from the 175 pack mules they had, and they discovered that the Indians were examining the contents of the packages on the packs. And that was proof positive that the Indians knew of the location of, of Custer. At least that's what he thought. And so he made a very crucial and a very faithful decision, and that was to launch his attack immediately before the Indians could break up. And he uh, started down the valley. And as he did so, he organized the uh, 7th Cavalry into four battalions. Well, all of this was, as Custer goes now, he's uh, concerned that the Indians may be getting away. Because uh, based on not only his experience, but other military officers and personnel, the, the problem is if the Indians, if they know there's an army column nearby, they will usually scatter like quail being, being hunted down. Uh, that's the general consensus. And that was the, the, other that was, that was the big worry, right? The, the big worry was that they would miss this opportunity. That's right. This was a golden opportunity as, as Custer saw it. Some of the scouts with Custer tried to warn Custer that, you know what, there are more Indians down there, as one of them said, there's more Indians down there than you got bullets in your guns. Custer was expecting probably to meet no more than 1,500. And with more than all, when you count the officers and civilians, Custer had over 600 and some men in his column, and he felt confident that they would be able to handle anything that they found. Well, the, the Indian village, it was a good-sized city. It probably had uh, seven to 9,000 people 
living in it, of which there were probably 1,500 to uh, 2,000 warriors or more. But the big thing was the Indians were not running away. When Custer got close to the Indian village on the south end, uh, again, people have to understand that at this point in time, Custer has not seen the size of the village. It stretched out along the Little Bighorn for a mile and a half to two miles in linear length there. And he orders Major Reno with three companies to cross the Little Bighorn and take a fast gate as he deemed prudent and charge the Indian village. And Custer would support him with the whole outfit. So Reno crosses the river and goes down the valley and wham, runs into uh, Indian resistance. So much resistance that uh, Reno is forced to dismount his men and fight on foot on a, on a skirmish line across the valley floor. Meantime, uh, Custer had not followed Reno across the valley. He stayed on the bluff on the, on the east side of the Little Bighorn. And apparently he was looking for a a route to get down to the other end of the village and strike it from the other end while Reno was engaging the Indian village from the south end. The the Indians put up so much pressure on Reno, they forced him within 15 to 20 minutes to fall back into a stand of timber along the banks of the Little Bighorn for protection. Sioux and Cheyenne forces continued to mount against Reno. And within a half an hour, the Indian pressure is so great that they break through the timber and uh, shoot one of Major Reno's scouts, Bloody Knife, right in the face. And it unnerves the uh, Major, as it probably would anybody. And there is panic setting in and command disorganization. As a result, Reno is going to lead his men out, most of the men did not even hear the command to to mount up and move out, but they saw soldiers mounting up and moving away. And Reno was leading his command back to where they came from. But by this time, Indian pressure coming in as uh, the Indians are sounding the alarm in the village, at the opportune time, Crazy Horse is going to come on the battlefield and also strike Reno as he is... uh, coming out of the timber. The attack by Crazy Horse and the other Indians are going to push Reno over to the Little Bighorn River itself and force him to go into the uh, steep banks of the Little Bighorn, then up the other side and up to a bluff uh, above the, the river there. They're about 300, the bluffs were about 300 feet above the valley floor. In that retreat, Reno lost a third of his command and killed and wounded. There were a good number of men who did not hear the orders to uh, move out of the timber. So they had to uh, hide in the timber and wait for some of them a day and a half before they could get out. Reno was a beaten man at this time. But fortunately for him, the Indians uh, who had pushed him across the river suddenly broke off the attack. And there's no question they could have wiped out all of Reno's men, save for the fact that Indian word was coming out. There are more soldiers coming, attacking from downstream. This was above four miles away at another crossing, now known as Medicine Tail Ford. 
some of Custer's men apparently tried to cross there and deliver an attack on the other end of the village. But the Indians saw what was going on, and they, those who had been fighting Reno now, now peeled off and went after Custer and joined the other Indians in the valley there at the other end of the village. One thing is you tell the story, I think, for the listeners, you know, one thing that's hard to, to understand, unless you've been there, is the scale that we're talking about. It's, as you mentioned, four miles downstream. This is not something that's easily seen from any one point. The temptation is to think this is relatively small space, but it's very large and it's, very it's, broken, yeah. the terrain. Yeah, on the west side where the village which encampment was, that was pretty much flat land there. That's why the mm-hmm. unions were camped there. It afforded good grazing for the 15,000 horses that they had with them. But it was also flat land for put the teepees up and to do the uh, to do the work of the village. You're right on the on the side that Custer is now moving. He is uh, traveling uh, through ravines and gullies and broken terrain. And once Custer leaves Reno to charge the Indian village, Custer um, is uh, pretty much on his own. He goes up and is seen on the bluffs above where Reno had formed his skirmish line in the valley. Some of the men, including Reno, they thought they could identify Custer up on the ridge. So they knew that Custer was was up there, had been up there, but he suddenly disappeared. And what transpires is that Custer has gone down into the ravines back behind uh, the, the high pinnacle peaks known as Weir Point, named for one of Custer's officers. All of this time, Custer has not seen the totality of the Indian village. Intervening bluffs, buttes, block his vision, and so he cannot see everything that's down below. So when he departs from the bluffs overlooking Reno's position in the valley there, Custer uh, loses all visual contact. And as he goes down toward the, uh, the, the fort there, he sends a couple of companies down that way. The Indians are not in great numbers at this point, but there's enough to drive and stop Custer. And they force him and his five companies. He only has about 200 men. That's all he's got to fight with in his five companies. And people who don't understand uh, cavalry fighting, whether it be civil war or Indian war, such as this, generally speaking, every fourth man is a horse holder. He does nothing more than hold his horse and three of his buddies so that when you start to look at the math, Custer may have had 200 men, but only 150 of them are able to fight initially because uh, they're, they're horse holders. All the extra ammunition is on those saddlebags. Of course, the Indians can see what's going on, and they're all coming up and waving blankets trying to frighten the uh, horses so that they, they become unmanageable. Or they simply shoot at the uh, the horses themselves to bring them down. Uh, so there's, you know, imagine a, bat- a battlefield that's literally inundated with chaos. You've got horses running around. You've got smoke. You've got men firing. You've got Indians blowing eagle bone whistles. And you've got a lot of noise and smoke and confusion on this battlefield. 
So whatever happens, Custer is forced back away from the crossing, and his men are now scattered along the hilltop for about three-quarters of a mile. Custer's going to take probably two companies and maybe attempt to go down further past the present-day National Cemetery and see if he can't cross down there. But he is going to be forced back to where the uh, the mass, uh, there, as monument, there is a um, hitstone uh, along the area where Custer was found. There were, uh, as, as Lieutenant Godfrey, who came over the battlefield two days after the battle, claimed that he found Custer uh, and 42 men behind a barricade of 39 dead horses. Well, in this area now known as Custer's Last Stand, the men had shot their horses for breastworks and fought the, uh, fought the last battle. So the Indians had literally uh, fought a, a battle and had won. Some of it thanks really to the um, what the decision of uh, Custer was. Uh, Custer divided his regiment up. Benteen, who had 125 men, had received the only written message in the battle. And it, it was from Custer to Benteen, which said, Benteen, come on, big village, be quick, bring packs. P.S., bring packs. The packs, of course, meaning the extra ammunition. Benteen joined up with Reno, and the two columns, uh, and along with the pack train that came up about an hour later, they put up a defense. The Indians finished off Custer in probably an hour's time, maybe a little longer than that. They uh, certainly uh, came back over and tried to uh, finish up uh, Reno and Benteen, but their uh, defense perimeter was a lot better. Custer's command, uh, as I say, was uh, pretty much scattered over a three-quarter mile area there. Today marked uh, one of the unique features of the battlefield, that little bighorn. There is a marker put up where evidence of a soldier's remains were found and originally buried on the battlefield, which makes it truly unique. There are not many battlefields in America or around the world that have a marker put up for every soldier whose body was was found. Yeah, in in recent years when I was there, uh, we also started the process of putting up Indian markers on the battlefield with the help of Native Americans to tell us where Indian warriors had fought and fell. Yeah, that, that's an interesting story in and of itself, because my understanding is that once the news that reached the East, um, in particular, I guess the Centennial was going on in Philadelphia at the time. Correct. And, and the, news, the news about Custer's defeat was sort of earth shattering because he was a Civil War hero, cavalryman commander during the Civil War for the Union, was a, a big personality of the day. It sent shockwaves through society at the time. And that the interesting thing from my perspective is that as a part of history, the Native American accounts were either not listened to or totally discounted or not asked for at the time. There, was, there wasn't much attention paid to the Native American point of view of the battle. Is that, is that a correct That's correct. I mean, the, 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 there were some honest efforts by some of the newspaper people to uh, retrieve the Indian point of views of the battle as to what happened. After all, they were the, they were the ones that survived the defeat of Custer, and they're the only ones that could tell what happened. Uh, and there were uh, efforts made, uh, but they were 
normally were not utilized in the early accounts of the battle. It, it, it was from generally the perspective of the of the losers, this being uh, Custer. The story was told. And uh, and it wasn't, but you start to see a little bit of change. For instance, in 1886, on the on the 10th anniversary of the battle, there had been uh, some of the veterans of the of the battle, uh, like Lieutenant Edward Godfrey and those guys. They came out and they invited some of the Indians who were now living on the reservation. Chief Gall, who was one of the lieutenants of a sitting book, they had been good friends at one time. Gall claims that the opening of the battle by Reno, gunfire uh, filtered into the uh, village and killed two of his wives and three of his children. Well, Gall told Godfrey that, uh, you know, what do you know about the battle? And, and Gall told him, you know, it was a, it was a battle uh, where the soldiers were, and from his perspective, the soldiers were stopped a half a mile from the Ford. Uh, the Ford theory was uh, being... Here was a uh, opposition to the fourth theory that Custer tried to cross there, and in fact, today that's still that's still an argument that's uh, in vogue. Is uh, there are uh, some historians who don't believe Custer uh, got to, went to the fort. Gall uh, in 1886 said the same thing. But anyway, I use the, the Gall account to show you that you start to see a little bit of uh, Indian viewpoints in it. Hamlin Garland, I think, in 1898. In an interview with Two Moon, Two Moon was uh, a Cheyenne warrior at Little Bighorn, and Two Moon, they, he asked him, you know, how long did the battle take? And Two Moon's answer did it, it took about as long as it takes a hungry man to eat his supper. Uh, one of their accounts uh, in this period were of, of general con, uh, general information. You know, uh, when people look at students of the battle, we want to know. Who, what, when, where? Where was such and such standing? Where did we think what event occurred? Uh, the Indian accounts at that time, part of it is the questions that were being asked. People were not asking the Indians the right types of questions. They got general answers. So, But yes, to answer your question, uh, to me, the Indian accounts have always been around. We just failed to utilize them. Yeah, I think uh, if, if memory serves a big affirmation of the Indian accounts was just after the fires in the mid-1980s on the park that burned the grass away and allowed it, it, for the archaeological yeah, exactly. digs. Yeah, exactly, because the, uh, you know, like I said, the battlefield has had marble markers showing where soldiers fell since 18, what, 1890, I guess is when they were put up, but there's none for the Indians. Well, when, when we had the fire in 1983, what it did, Charles, it it burned off the matted grasses of the battlefield, which the battlefield had been fenced off since the 18, 1890, I guess. And so there had not been many fires that had come through there. Well, with all the fuel accumulation, 1983 comes along, and it stripped all of the fuel off the battlefield. And what it did was open up the area. So... The next year, we brought an archaeological team in, a Park Service archaeological team, and they went over the battlefield, and lo and behold, they found Indian positions. One is called Greasy Grass Ridge. It fronts uh, the backside of Calhoun Ridge, and they also have the lower part of Calhoun Ridge. 
They found uh, lots of uh, Indian cartridge casings there. And then at Calhoun Ridge proper, they found a huge pocket of cartridge casings, spent cartridge casings coming from uh, Henry's and Winchester's, which then they dubbed the name Henry Henry Hill for the number of Henry shells that were found there. So the, the archaeology opened up, the fire helped open up the possibility of doing a survey, and we discovered a lot more Indian positions. We also uh, did work along the um, markers on the battlefield and discovered you know, we, we know we have 40 to 50 more markers than Custer had. In fact, there are 249 markers on the battlefield. About 200 men died with Custer. So how do we get more markers? Well, over the years, from 1876 to 1881, when they uh, had burial details come back to the battlefield, they collected all the bones that they could. And then when they came out in 1890, uh, they put up markers. And anywhere there, in some cases, they put up two markers side by side because they found human remains at those places, which gave rise to the uh, one, one historian's uh, book, um, in 1953, uh, which talked about the buddy system, that uh, Little Bitcoin showed evidence of soldiers pairing up for protection. Certainly, this was not the case, because the archaeologists came through and finding uh, human bone fragments, they uh, surveyed them and analyzed them, and what they discovered was where you had a number of paired markers, the human remains found in those sites was consistent with being the same person. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason you, that uh, you have more markers on the battlefield than you have than actually Custer had men. Speaking of markers, the thing that's, that always struck me, I remember the first time I went to Little Bighorn, it was actually during a fishing trip where I had some free time. And I drove over and I was by myself and you know went through the gate and looked across the battlefield. And it struck me that these these markers represented people and that they were spread out all over the place. You could see them way in the distance and clusters here and there. But what struck me was it must have been a just a an awful experience. I mean, a lonely place to die in the middle of nowhere in those days, right? Absolutely. And and just that the human tragedy on both sides of the of the yes. engagement. You know, we the focus has has always been uh or has often been more focused on the on the cavalry, but of course the Native Americans suffered as well. Yeah. And I, I think that that's you know that's a good segue into talking about your efforts to recognize that fact through the memorial that's now on the battlefield. Right. Okay. Well, the memorial uh, there have been protests at the battlefield oh ever since the particularly during the Indian uh, movement of the, of the 1970s. Uh, nothing had ever come to it. And, of course, the argument could be made and was made that there, there were several things going on. Uh, the battlefield was named after Custer, the loser. Nothing about the Indians and their, their attempt to preserve their way of life, their, their culture. Uh, the other thing was a name. was So the, the argument came up for a name change which eventually happens in, I think, 1991 is when that, when that occurred. Meantime, uh, Congress said that there could, would be an Indian memorial placed up there because there was one for Custer in the 7th Cavalry 
at the battlefield, but nothing for the Indians. So the Indian Memorial came about uh, when I got up there. The the uh, legislation had already passed. The only problem was there was no funding. Congress had not provided any funding for it until Congress provided funding. It wasn't going to happen. I I know that my predecessors and myself we had gone out and tried to raise money, but it, it was not it was not working. So eventually, I, um, I went. I went to Washington to meet with the Montana delegation and to talk to them about, you know, when it's been ten years since this was uh, established as a they were going to make an Indian memorial up here, and there's not one. I don't think there's going to be one. You can make one very quickly by just simply providing the uh, funding to do so. So the Montana delegation was very supportive of it, and they, of course. Uh, uh, at that time, I think the only Indian in the U.S. Senate was Ben Nighthorse Campbell out of Colorado, and he was very supportive of it. He came up to the battlefield, and lo and behold, eventually it was the funding was there to build the Indian Memorial. And um, by golly, you know, we, we've, we've got one there. You know, and it's made a lot of difference. I was there at, at a time when I was a historian. There was nothing for the Indians to to see up there. There were no markers, no memorial. And then once we got the memorial up, there were a lot more Indians coming to the battlefield. Uh, Native Americans were coming in, in good numbers. And it also improved the rapport with our Indian uh, neighbors, uh, particularly the Cheyenne, who I brought over some of their delegation and said, hey, how can we improve the battlefield even more? And they said, well, why don't you, uh, you got markers for the soldiers where they fell. Why not put up markers for where the Indians fell? I said, it's a great idea. I said, we need, we need some documentation. We need to know where those Indians fell. And they said, there's a lot of Indians uh, who fell in the battle and there are rock carns over the battlefield. I said, and he said, you people don't know who they are, or all of them. But he says, we have a good list of where these people fell and the names of those warriors who fell. So with their participation, we uh, put up initially Cheyenne markers because they were the closest tribe working with us. And then eventually we uh, also got the uh, different bands of Lakota Sioux involved in the, in the process too. So now we have, I think, around 30 markers on the battlefield, uh, Indian markers on the battlefield. You know, so when people come over from a Native, when my Native American comes over, well, they got something to see now. You know, not just the uh, Indian memorial, but they got markers on the battlefield. Yeah, it's a fantastic um, development and improvement in my view, because at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about people on both sides, and we're we're all interested in the history, but. The bottom line is it was a tragic event for both sides, not only that day, but subsequent, right? So as history unfolded, congratulations I, I don't on think achieving more, that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I think more so for the Indians because remember, their whole life is evolved around their family. All of their possessions is located on the hillside in, in, in horses and ponies uh, and what's in that teepee. And they are so dependent on the mother earth around them to provide them with the buffalo for food, for shelter. And now they're being told, you gotta go live on a reservation whether you want to or not, that's just, that's just the way things are. 
And so I understand the Indian point of view of wanting to fight and hold on to what they've got. They have been pushed around to a point that uh, there's nothing left for them, but either to surrender or fight. I tip my hat to people like Sitting Bull and Gall and Crazy Horse and others who said, you know what? As Sitting Bull said, I do not want to go to a reservation and there be dependent on the piece of fat back the government gives me. I want to live out here the way I have, the way my grandfather lived. Yeah, you have to you, you have to respect that. I think uh, the practical aspect of the government requiring the Indians to move to reservations during the middle of winter when traveling in that part of the country during winter and in, in the summer is difficult. In the winter, it's I, I don't know how that would have you know been accomplished. Uh, moving villages and people in deep snow, et cetera. So that's right. Yeah, you, you couldn't accomplish that. Uh, there was no way in the world they're going to do it. And only six weeks later, after the ultimatum had been uh, delivered, six weeks after the deadline had come up, they are attacked. That is, uh, the Cheyennes are attacked on the Powder River. Uh, mm-hmm. General Crook's forces are going to strike us. I mean, the Indians realized that, hey, the Army means business. And so what the Indians did for some protection was start to band together for common defense. And they were still not going in. They just simply uh, started to band together and said, if the army means business, we had better collect our forces too uh, in order to protect each other better. Well, you know, Neil, that's, this has been a great overview and a great story in terms of your career and interesting in, in the Battle of Little Bighorn. But my hope is that this conversation sort of encourages folks to learn more about history. I, I wondered if you could close with some comments about the importance of history and what we learned for it and why study it from your perspective as a historian and a you know superintendent of the park, et cetera. you have any ideas to share well, on that subject? History, to me, is very important because it tells, you, it tells you something about the past, about how you got to where you are now. History is uh, oftentimes, most of the time, thank goodness, is simply about People growing up, going to work, having families, starting a business or involved. But it also uh, takes in the uh, broader perspectives of, all right, we see what happens when cultures come together. It's like a clash of cultures. And you see that in the Indian War period. You know, of course, it's so evident at at Little Bitcoin, you got got two different cultures here that that are clashing together. So history uh, provides us with a window into the past as to how things may have been. And what you do is, and it's not just the battles, but it's the human element of it. The stories of those Indians who tell the story, I think it was Noisy Walker who had a little big one, had part of his jaw shot, shot away. And he died that night, I think, down in the village. You have soldier letters that are 22 years old uh, coming out of Baltimore, Maryland, and they've got letters uh, going back home to their girlfriends about when they get out of the army, they're going to come back and, and marry a girl and settle down. Of course, they, they don't make it there. They're killed at Little Bitcoin. And so that's the, that's the tragedy uh, that we have with, with the military. But it tells us, as we study it, it tells us about the people in history whether it be a warrior or whether it's a, uh, I love to tell the story of Chief Joseph and this purse. 
in his eloquent speech at his surrender up at the Bear Paw Mountains in Montana in 1877, he tells a story about he's going to surrender, he'll fight no more forever. And his daughter had uh, he had lost her, and she had she had died, probably frozen to death. To me, history is important. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many books. And how many movies? Uh, the media is just we get so much of our information because history is rewarding to to read about. It's not read about, it's to look at on the silver screen. My goodness, that's how I got interested in, in history, was looking at Earl Flynn die there at Little Bitcoin. So history, as it's portrayed on the silver screen, is uh, is wonderful because there's so many movies that are made about history, and it's not just in the books that we have. Yeah, if you want to read about a subject and you're looking for a subject to read about where there's plenty of written material, Little Bighorn's got to be near the top of the list. Um, <laughs> I, I think only the Battle of Gettysburg has had more ink spilled on it than Little Bighorn. I'm sure that's true. Well, Neil, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to have a chat about your career and Little Bighorn and the trials and tribulations of managing the park and getting the, the recognition for the Native Americans. I really appreciate the time and I've, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated getting to know you over the last couple of months. So thank you so much for taking the time today. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Neil Mangum and myself on today's episode. Uh, you could tell, I think, that Neil and I enjoyed having a chat about the Little Bighorn and his trials and tribulations as a as an historian trying to find an opportunity at the Little Bighorn Park. I, I just would say on a personal note, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with Neil on the Little Bighorn Battlefield and the Rosebud Battlefield, etc. He is unbelievably knowledgeable, and if you ever have the opportunity to meet him in person or perhaps even take one of his tours, I would highly encourage it. I will put a link to more information about Neil and some of the tours that he leads in the notes, as well as a suggested reading list if you'd like to learn more about the Battle of the Little Bighorn in the Sioux War of 1876. Thanks a lot for joining me. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.